Miss Mackintosh, my darling. Chapter 13 Farewell to the last certitude, even that tender night of my fourteenth birthday, when I trembled on the margin of sentient life. Farewell to Miss Mackintosh, for though I should surely see her again, yet she should have so greatly changed in my eyes that she might have been to all intents and purposes a perfect stranger I had lived with for seven years without so much as realizing the ominous fact. I should see that I had taken for granted the strangest being on earth, that I had even reluctantly washed and ironed her shirts and collars and handkerchiefs as I would have done most cheerfully had I known the facts. I had thought of her as probably the only ordinary person I knew, as far from mysterious, no one to compete with the moon and the waves, and all the while, who had she been? Who was she? My ignorance had been perhaps my salvation. I had been like the weary traveler who rode over Lake Constance in a night of crystalline sub-zero weather, blotting out for forty-six miles all vistas and landscapes and signposts, all bushes and houses and trees snow pebbles driving against his cheeks, burning against his eyelids and his eyeballs congealed, snow shrouding both the horseman and the horse, so he could not see their reflection, his breath freezing like a burning sword, and who did not realize that he had left terra firma long ago, his horse's hooves striking sparks like stars, that at any moment that which he took to be frozen pasture land for the sheep, and pasture land for the brood mares and the foals and slumbrous meadows of wild flowers would be the grinding and roaring and breaking of ice, the icy waters of imperial darkness suddenly closing over the rider, and the horse as if the earth had swallowed them up, and who, when he reached the other shore and looked back and saw where he had been, that no one had ever lived and crossed frozen Lake Constance, which was never completely frozen, that he had done the impossible, that he had crossed that waste expanse which was said to be impossible to cross. The alpine peaks, mirrored as on a trembling sea of glass, had dropped dead with the shock of the after-knowledge. Everything, as I looked back, would be different from what it had been, the simplest gesture having a different meaning, the smallest word being weighted with a different message. Never again should I see Miss Mackintosh, whom I had known so well in daily life, whom I had hardly stopped to think of or speculate on as if as to some other life i had not known whom i had even rebelled against never again except in memories dim or golden light should i see that simple-minded fussy old nursemaid secure in her authority her always being right her black umbrella uplifted against a darkened sky her dripping whaler's hat drawn down below her ears as with her face pale and twisted with unuttered pain her lips blue and drawn to the thinnest line. She had used to plow through old, forgotten cloud bursts, taking her constitutional, though it might be a better pill for her, or had briskly walked back and forth across the sun-splotched nursery floor, slapping her knees as she would ask her bawling question. Where is North Dakota, and what is a monsoon, and what is a mirage? Bear a cartwheel, or is there such a thing as a mirage in nature? After this night of change, that which should take place in myself, if not in another, I should not be sure of anything, not even of that old creature who had seemed, in spite of some old odd, in spite of some few oddities which were her own, so very average and unseeming, the one person who had not veered suddenly before my eyes, whose ways had appeared fixed like the North Star and unchanging, and who had been neither the unstoppable, unstoppable, and who had been neither the unstable voyage nor the voyager, 
and all that great glimmering many-roomed house where my mother feigned death because it was an enchantment greater than fleeting existence. The one person who was not chimerical and fading, who was by no means the phantom filled with color, with sonority, with elusive vision of what was not. The one person who was not the dreamer and the mistaken, egregious dream displacing life. But farewell to Miss Mackintosh as I had always known her. Nor should the surrounding objects, moons, suns, stars, waters, give assurance that she had not given. And farewell to the unity of awakening life, the superficial consciousness which omits so many hidden things. And farewell to the old moralities, the proverbial wisdom, the rote questions and answers like the rote tide, the routine of our humble days, the narrow schedule, all that fabric of self-deception we two persons had lived by, and farewell to the past and its illusion, and farewell to the reason, the purpose, the goal, the future, and farewell to what cheer, the cherry blossoms billowing like surf, the peach orchards, the globed fruit, the dusty lanes, for all had been as if they were a lie. Farewell to the dream of the past, for it should be laid bare like a corpse before my eyes, and I should see that there is nothing which does not bear the capacity to surprise and shock us with the absence of all those qualities and properties we had supposed, perhaps, too, with the presences of others. I wandered through dense, neglected undergrowth of dew-drenched, steaming gardens which, laid out non-symmetrically, had not been planted for the ravaged eyes of the blind. Immortal gardens were, according to my mother's scheduled disruptive visions, those which saved her from the absolute darkness one might meet so easily, just as one turned down a winding path of broken shells with Dr. Galen, who was a Greek physician and medical writer of perhaps the second century, very, very brilliant, with Dr. Harvey, who had discovered the circulation of blood in that greatest of all sublunar mysteries, the human body, though his own blood no longer circulated with Oliver Goldsmith, or Ben Johnson, or any number of distinguished persons, for life was only this, a perpetual garden party, amidst the tragic spirit, even the dead hostess. Her guests would surely understand why she herself could not make her appearance, but she was indisposed, suffering both chills and fever, her eyes bright with love. Delicate vapors of colors drifted like scarves and veils and plumes before my eyes, like rustlings of old cracked water-stained silks, yellow and green and rose, like cuffs of foaming lace, like powdered wigs and ribbons and hearts, like wheeling skirts, anti-masks and masks, snoods embroidered with pearls, like bony fingers carrying bouquets of faded, mildewed flowers, and there were congregations of pagodas and umbrellas, and there were flutes and choral voices. It had been a real garden party, of course, such a one as I had never attended. There would have been something to eat, and I was hungry enough to eat the flowers, the moths. Upon the darkness checkered with golden light, a chessboard of which the squares moved and changed positions in the mathematical wind, the life-sized chessmen seemed, as they emerged with coruscated mist, their rounded eyeballs lighted by the reflection of the absent sea, to be moving, too, as if played by invisible players, who could perceive an order of multiple confusions of movements and sounds? A secret plan. A somnambulist seagull drifted anarchically on motionless wings through an opening in the curtain of enormous shadow and light, the dark or gold-veined shimmering fog.
Stars speckled the dark blue sky, smooth as a bird's egg, and there were marble statues trembling on the brink of supernumerary consciousness. And there were stone helmets gleaming in the finny light of the sea. And the Venus was bearded by patriarchal fog. And many familiar things were increasingly unfamiliar as if, until I had seen them in the illuminated darkness, I had never seen them. The mist flowers drooped their purple, languorous heads, seeming a part of the mist. There were flowers opening, long-lipped, bright-eyed, hairy, and sticky, and there were spotted flowers which, when I reached out to pluck them, flew away like luna moths, leaving the gray branch bare and moldering. Upon the cheeks of cherubim, which had been formed of barnacles as by the action of a meditative sea, there were shadows cast by white, dwarfish roses and a continual stir of musical sound, even of ghostly sound, that, that which should not be heard, for I had come to the garden of the deaf. In this garden, as my mother would always say, the ear is dead. A frog screamed. A fishhawk dived. I stood still, hearing all around me the stirrings of leaves and flowers, the splashings of waters, even the voices of crickets against the roarings of the sea. There were water-spouting gargoyles, those which my mother described as family faces, and there were pigeon-breasted marble statues, and their reflections cast upon reflections. Her hair spread like gossamer upon a green silken pillow, her eyes as bright as pebbles in a brook. My mother would moodily insist, talking to Mr. Spitzer, his face gray and many-folded in the turgid evening light, his great head bobbing and nodding. This was the garden of the death, but the ear was dead, in fact, which he knew certainly as well as she did, so why deny it? Why pretend that he could hear? The ear was dead, she would repeat to Mr. Spitzer, and that was why, for so many years more than either he or she could realize, she had not dared to go out of doors, for she could not endure the silence unbroken by the sound, and she feared the silence, feared it most when a frog screamed. She marveled over and over again that this was Mr. Spitzer, her old friend, that he walked abroad, that his fat cheeks twitched, that his forehead throbbed with thought, that he lifted his hand. She marveled that Mr. Spitzer argued law cases in dusty courtrooms, that he said yea and nay, that he made important decisions. For who could hear him in all this world, and who had heard his voice for meaningless years? And what different that his legal practice made? Was it a star? It was not even so much as a straw blowing in the wind. Why did he come to see her? The ear was dead, she would lovingly sum up his case, and urged also that he needed not trouble himself to attempt now even a brief reply to her, her regrets, for there was no sound, not even the creaking of starlight. When he asked her whose ear was dead, she would always answer that it was his ear, and how should he deny it? She naturally did not mean his dead brother's ear, and why should he try to confuse her, his old friend? When he walked through the garden of the deaf, Taking the shortcut to the sea road, which was sometimes lost in booming surf, did it not give him pause, the dead ear, so she would ask, her voice running like water when the ice was broken? Did he not stop to think of the dead ear, to drop, perhaps a flower, upon that silent grave? Did he not tremble slightly, surrounded by such silences as few living men had known? For was not his heart silent, too, like the dead ear? Mr. Spitzer, however, would sometimes insist on speaking, even though he should not, he believed, he be heard. He would argue that, after all, if she referred to his dead brother's ear, he must point out that his brother had not been buried anywhere 
on this vast amorphous estate and came not among her dead guests. As for Mr. Spitzer, it was true that, of course, in his right ear there was always a subdued roaring, a noise which came from the head only, a noise which his dead brother's dead physician had assured him did not come from this world, though he had learned to live with it and many traffic signals blowing even in the silent, empty street. Mr. Spitzer was trying to learn not to turn his head every time he heard a traffic horn. But my mother would not be persuaded that Mr. Spitzer was right, for in this garden of the death she would vividly insist, talking louder and louder, arguing with pompous, beclouded, many-evolved Mr. Spitzer, who did his best not to betray her real confusions, his possible agreement with her at some level other than reality, Arguing with Mr. Spitzer, even perhaps long after sighing he had departed, the sense of the vision remained. The bud and branch and falling leaf, but the ear was dead, and the sound was fled from the universe, and he could not hear another's voice, voice, not even his own voice speaking. All the world which entered through the ear, reason and imagination and human argument, it was also closed and soundless, and there was not a sound to be heard either by herself or Mr. Spitzer, and that was why his music was the silence. One should see the bird and the shadow of the bird, but one should not hear the song. One should see his lover's face, but never hear his voice speaking farewell.